My name is Roy Vu. I have a PhD in U.S. history. I've been teaching history, U.S. history for about 15 years. I have had um, many um, wonderful years of teaching, gosh, hundreds, maybe thousands of students. So I'm glad to be here to join this uh, wonderful podcast. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you these days? Great question. To be Vietnamese, I would say, first of all, oftentimes we are categorized or labeled or associated uh, by with something that passed by outsiders, by non-Vietnamese, right? And, and that in turn could uh, shape how we identify ourselves. Um, now that said, of course, we should first and foremost identify ourselves um, through uh, our own myriad of ways, right? Uh, but unfortunately, uh, we may not have control over what non-Vietnamese uh, may identify Vietnamese people as, and that is um, to get to the root of the matter, we are constantly associated with the Vietnam War, a war that continues to uh, exist and linger on um, for many Vietnamese Americans, not only because of how we're associated with the war, but many of us uh, remain traumatized by the war itself, as well as its aftermath, uh, the traumas of refuge and exile, uh, resettlement and uh, racialization uh, in the United States and, and elsewhere around the world. And so as a result of our traumatic experiences, such experiences, of course, shape our identity. At the same time, we, and I like to think it's part of human nature, we also find ways to resist um, whatever negative associations that non-Vietnamese men had with Vietnamese people. And we become what I call, or what historians tend to call active agents of history. So in other words, we conduct agency uh, by not only uh, utilizing resistance, but also perseverance, right? Uh, and also uh, constantly seeking ways to identify ourselves as Vietnamese, whether it be through food ways, or through um, religious um, uh, expression and uh, spiritual um, meditation, or whether uh, it may be through music and literature. And um, in regards to all those ways and, and more, uh, I think to be Vietnamese today, it's uh, very beautiful and diverse and powerful. And once more, in regards to our post-war identity, right? Post-Vietnam War identity, uh, I think uh, there's still much more for us to identify ourselves uh, as we continue to explore our own ways uh, to, to identify ourselves. And so I think it's imperative that every Vietnamese um, in the United States and elsewhere uh, continue uh, to find um, her or his uh, identity. Uh, whether it be through, again, um, cultural ways, um, sexual orientation, or through sports, or through filmmaking and, and the arts, 
all of these play a major role, right? And in terms of how we identify ourselves and it makes it for a more rich and compelling uh, story, right? Or many more rich and compelling stories of Vietnamese, uh, not just the United States, but around the world. Your answer just triggered a question in my mind. And I want to make it clear that I think that uh, your family, my family, um, we are on that of history. Um, and that is that we, as a families, uh, we, our families fled uh, Vietnam, if we just want to be straight up about it. But something that triggered a question in me is coming from a U.S. history professor, you use the word Vietnam War, right? And the idea Perfect. of identity. Now, this is the first time I'm questioning. It just literally popped up in my mind. I haven't, uh, I didn't take time to really think about this question. But as you paired identity and this idea of the way we see it, the way they see it, the way uh, agents, uh, what, what did you, what terms did you use? Agents? Oh, historians call it active agents of history. Active, active agents active, of history. Yeah, active. Um, so I'm just taking this hodgepodge of ideas and it's now hitting me that if we call it the Vietnam War, where are we as a second generation or one and a half? I'm not sure if you're one and a half or a second. Where, where are we looking at it from, right? Because that means that we, are we Americans? Are we white Americans calling the Vietnam War? It, it, now it becomes a, a weird feeling of it being, now I don't want to be labeled as anything, right? I'm, I'm just asking a simple question. I don't want to be labeled as anything other than uh, I'm a curious person asking a question right now and I don't want it to get political. I hope it doesn't, you know, well, be nice for the ratings, but I mean, <laughs> I want to ask a, a really simple question. Like if we're calling it the Vietnam War, if, if us Vietnamese Americans are now calling this the Vietnam War, continuing to call it the Vietnam War, where, who are we? Are we no longer Vietnamese and we're standing on the outside? Okay. So, I think you understand my question. No, it's a fantastic question. So as far as, um, um, as far as me as personally, yeah, I'm second generation Vietnamese American. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and I lived in, in Texas all my life. Um, and um, regards to uh, your question, it's a, it's a fantastic question. Since for, for the Vietnamese in Vietnam, right, they, they would uh, call the war the American war. Right, and sometimes uh, scholars would uh, uh, assert the um, uh, the uh, the belief that the the war is actually two wars. Right, you have the first war uh, between the Vietnamese nationalists and the French colonists. Right after World War II, from 1945 to 1954, and the French colonists were defeated, and so then you have the Geneva Accords, uh, which divided Vietnam into two halves, right? North Vietnam and South Vietnam, the 17th parallel. Consequently, you have, uh, as a result of the fact that you did not have a free election in 1956 to unify Vietnam into one country, you have what we call the Vietnam War, right? Uh, but what some uh, scholars refer to as the second Indochina War. And this is a war that, going back to the Vietnamese Vietnam, would refer to as the American War, right? Because for the Vietnamese nationalists, and for Vietnamese communists later on, they're gonna view this war as war against Americans, right? And so hence they call it the American war. Uh, so 
it's it's a f- fabulous question, and I think for Vietnamese Americans, say for for us second generation, for instance, um, and perhaps future generations, we we would most likely become more, um, for lack of a better term, uh, Americanized or more acculturated to the country we uh, we you know, grow up in and, and live in uh, than say the Vietnam, right? Now that said, of course, you do have more and more Vietnamese Americans, particularly of the younger generations, um, going to Vietnam to either visit relatives, family members, or you like self to visit uh, family members, but also to conduct uh, some business endeavors, right? And so part of uh, the Vietnamese identity, to go back with the first question, is that entrepreneurial spirit. And so there are more and more younger Vietnamese Americans like yourself who are returning to Vietnam constantly, right, for uh, a number of good reasons. And so those visits, of course, would help such uh, Vietnamese Americans like yourself uh, be more connected to your Vietnamese identity, right? Now, that said, I'm sure when you go back to Vietnam, well, maybe you, you probably don't experience as much, but this is just from um, what, uh, uh, from the test, uh, testimonies of, of my friends and relatives and, and my wife. Um, for Vietnamese Americans to go, go to Vietnam, it, the Vietnamese in Vietnam would automatically point out that they are Americans, right? But yeah, strange enough, um, sometimes, you know, being here in the United States, going back to U.S. history, we have, unfortunately for Asian Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, there's a long history of viewing Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as foreigners, right? So in other words, here in the United States, we are perceived as foreigners, but yet going back to Vietnam or going to Vietnam, uh, we are perceived as Americans. Yeah. So it's uh, quite a interesting contrast and um, obviously a, a, a conflicting duality, right? Nevertheless, I, I like to argue that for Vietnamese Americans, uh, we create our own niches, right? Our own spaces or what we call liminal or in-between spaces uh, that we cultivate for ourselves uh, to help us um, be active agents of history, right? Uh, to have some control over our own narratives and our own lives. So I think that's very important too. Okay. But I don't want to call it the Vietnam War anymore. After this last five minutes of talking to you, as I'm listening, <laughs> I'm like, but I don't feel confident and comfortable calling it the Vietnam War either. Well, I mean, the American War either. Right? That puts us in a weird position. Us guys, me, you, second generation people, puts us in a very awkward position. Um, my brother was born in Vietnam. He lives in Vietnam now. I think he's, you know, got every right and he's at the liberty to call it the the American War, perhaps. I don't know if that's his choice. I don't know how he views it. Never had a conversation. I've never even thought about it up until this very point. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I, because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at your face. I'm thinking U.S. professor, but Vietnamese face. And now you're talking about the Vietnam War. So it's now like these, and I'm thankful, very grateful to be allowed to have these conversations because I wouldn't normally think about these things. And and so now I'm left in a dilemma after speaking to you for five minutes. You know, um, you know what do we do? Um, I'm not <laughs> looking for an answer. Um, well, I, I mean, there, there. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I understand that we come from very, um, we come from very, 
how can I say, uh, sensitive uh, families. We, you know, we we come from a very sensitive group of people who have died and uh, have been, you know, um, in in tough situations. I mean, that's putting it lightly, but at the same time, um, we are. I well, I am, and you know, a lot of the people that I you know do associate with and, and do business with are living in Vietnam. We're Americans, Vietnamese Americans, living in Vietnam, and really benefiting from both cultures immensely profiting um having a great life as a result of straddling you know these two cultures so i on one hand i'm not entirely vietnamese when i go back to vietnam and i'm not entirely really american as i live here i'm living in this uh no man's land sometimes um but at the same time living in both uh cultures very you know alive and well at the same time so um, but calling it the Vietnam War now, um, from now on, I think for me, I'm going to have to think twice. And I think I'm going to start questioning my friends and people that I associate with um, to, you know, how do you, you know, I'm not going to ask you, but I'm going to ask, start asking my friends, you know, how they feel about calling it the Vietnam War and not the American War. Well, it's a great, again, like I said, it's a great question. Um, I mean, one solution would be to call it uh, the U.S.-Vietnam War. Uh, so, I mean, that, that hasn't become part of, you know, of our vernacular yet, but I mean, that's a possibility. Um, again, some scholars still refer it to as the second Indochina war, but you know, the Vietnam war, yeah, that term remains the most popular, yeah. um, not only in academic circles, but in, 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 in the public as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's great that you're questioning, uh, how we identify this war, uh, a war that plays a big role in our own identity. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. It's good that you raise such questions. Why did you get into teaching history? Why not? I mean, why U.S. history, I guess? Oh, I always, I always loved history. And that starts from my, my own um, family's history. And so my parents being, of course, uh, affected by the Vietnam War negatively and, and um, subsequently being, being refugees and, and starting over in the United States and, and uh, try to settle our lives as new Americans. Um, in, uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, it was uh, obviously a difficult, arduous journey. As for thousands of other uh, Vietnamese refugees, like your parents, um, and so to me, their their story, as well as you know the the stories of my my relatives and my friends and their parents and how they got here, and um, always fascinated me. Uh, in addition, I always felt that history part of it. I always felt that history is is, is relevant um and one of my favorite novels of course is uh, or one of my favorite uh, authors is uh, george orwell and of course one of my favorite novels is 1984 uh and so history is, is always relevant we're always connected to history and of course we want to learn from history so that we won't um repeat the same mistakes in the future right in fact by knowing ourselves and who who we were we're as a result we're we have a better idea of who we are today and consequently we can make better decisions in the future. Um, it's history is personal, right? Uh, and in history, it just, just, just reflect on say you wake up tomorrow morning and not know who you are. It's, it's a frightening experience, right? Yeah. And not knowing your past, not know what's your, you know, what's your name, why are you here and, and so forth. It, it's frightening. And so you feel lost, you feel uh, disoriented. Right. And I think history, helps us become uh, more um, oriented 
in regards to who we are and uh, allows us to move forward. Uh, if, of course, uh, we do so meaningfully um, in regards to learning from the past. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, I love hearing other people's stories. You know, there's a story part in history, right? And I think I mentioned to you before um, that history never ends until every story is told. And I think oftentimes stories are never told, right? Uh, unfortunately, um, and I'm sure um, when, when you, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you've got a chance to um, talk to your parents about about the war and, and the, the refugee experience and, and the resettlement experience, but um, th th there are tons of stories that are waiting to be uh, recorded and documented, right? Just among Vietnamese Americans ourselves. And these, these are very important stories that we need to, to, to document and save um, before they pass away, right? Uh, and so I think it's very important that we document as many stories as possible. Uh, and, um, and it goes back to history being personal, right? And yeah. I think uh, it's important to record as many stories as possible. And going back to being a historian, it's to me, I find it more fascinating to hear, to hear other people's stories like yourself uh, than my own actual story. That's just me. Maybe it's just our podcast too, uh, well, but we'll be as nearly successful as yours. You uh, are more than, uh, I, I invite you to ask me questions uh, throughout the conversation today uh, as much as you'd like. Um, awesome. It's a two-way street. And this is a conversation. Um, I am very selfish. I love to uh, uh, ask questions and, and receive knowledge coming from you and information. Uh, but at the same time, I'd like to be generous uh, in my uh, time with you uh, and offer, you know, anything. If you have questions, uh, please uh, don't hold back. Um, I... Well, may I ask a question now? Yeah, of course. Yes. Well, uh, have you had the opportunity to sit down with your folks uh, or, or, and or your wife's parents and, and, and record any part of their lives? I haven't, I haven't, and I regret it. Uh, my father passed away 10 years ago. Oh, I'm um, sorry. But right before I um, embarked on my uh, the Vietnamese podcast, uh, I had an uncle, his older brother, my father's older brother, who uh, was uh, in the Phoenix program, came to the US twice, I think, and trained at the CIA, and I've always wanted to get to know him more and um you know unfortunately he passed away right before i i um i began the i did ask him but you know we couldn't get things coordinated tech tech wise and so um that's for my father uh i think i i think i actually had a lot of time and we spoke we talked a lot about but we didn't get to record it um and i've asked my mother to record um if she would go on a podcast but She's making me um, prepare all these questions and she wants to really control the narrative. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very uh, skeptical that that will be a quality, uh, you know, cause she knows <laughs> that I'm going to use it for, for the podcast. And I, I think she's very careful about what she says. I understand. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my right. parents are the same way too. They're very cautious people. And I guess that's from the, the war in Exodus, right? Yeah. That, you know, that by, as a result, they're, they're, very cautious people. Yeah. Um, wh what in the last two decades, I, I guess here's the question. Uh, let's say the last two decades, do you see uh, a shift from more Anglo-centric history uh, perspectives, uh, uh, the pendulum swinging from more Anglo-centric uh, perspectives to other centric uh, perspectives, or has it 
for you been sort of steady, consistent? Uh, you're very open to the narratives being uh, coming from everywhere and you see history as more of a living, breathing um, document sort of uh, that's happening in, in time. Um, or do you see it like in, in the in the university, at the university level, is it very Anglo-centric when you first started? Uh, we weren't really given a chance to, to ask questions as much uh, and, and portray our, our, our side of the story? Or has it been fairly open in the academic circles the last 20 years of, of your um, career? So a great question. Uh, a combination of both. Uh, and I think um, the last 20 years, we, we have seen some progress in regards to where you do see um, other uh, fields of study uh, gaining greater prominence. Uh, for instance, um, Asian American studies, right? Uh, the Association of Asian American Studies, AAAS, has uh, grown in leaps and bounds in the last 20 years. And so that's uh, very exciting to see. And uh, I hope to uh, participate and join uh, the next AAAS uh, conference in Denver in April of 2022. So that's that's very exciting news. And I think in, in the field of, say, for instance, ethnic studies, um, of course, that, that field, uh, that genre, um, wasn't uh, created or invented academia until the 1960s, right? Thanks to the civil rights movement uh, and thanks to college students demanding to have Asian American studies or Asian American history classes on campus. Uh, and so it required uh, a tremendous uh, amount of uh, one hand resistance uh, and then had creativity, right? And persistence uh, to have um, Asian American studies or Asian American history courses uh, on college campuses. Uh, going back to my early years of teaching, I, I taught one uh, semester at Rice University and it was an Asian American studies course. And the students were brilliant. Uh, I think they were more brilliant than the instructor, but they were fantastic. And uh, they were just phenomenal. And they were the ones who demanded uh, and wanted uh, an Asian American uh, history course uh, at Rice University. And so it turned out to be, um, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, at the beginning of the semester, it was the first uh, Asian American history course available at Rice University or it was taught at Rice University. Uh, and so I felt very honored and privileged uh, to, uh, to to teach the very first Asian American history class at Rice University. And this is back in 2005. Yeah, 2005. So it was, uh, it was just a humbling uh, yet um, incredible experience. Uh, and so I think gradually, uh, as far as academia in general, yeah, you, you do see a, you begin to see a, a plethora of, um, of courses that, um, that would allow marginalized groups, like say, Asian Americans and most specifically Vietnamese Americans uh, to have uh, courses that um, that 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 speak volume to them, right? Uh, that personally uh, affect them, right? Uh, and so another thing I want to mention real quickly: back in two thousand five and two thousand six, as part of this small but committed group of uh, uh, Vietnamese Estonians um, who were trying to establish. Uh, a Vietnamese studies and, and language program at University of Houston. And uh, I'm proud to say that uh, we were successful in, in establishing uh, such a program at the University of Houston uh, in 2006. I think it started spring 2006. And so it was a small, but, but uh, I would say mighty group. And it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was hard. It was very difficult um, to, to not only create that program, but to have some 
support and unity from the local Vietnamese community as well as uh, from University of Houston. Um, funding was a big issue. Um, finding the right instructors was also another issue. Uh, and um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy, but uh, it was definitely a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, and it's something that uh, I've always cherished because I, I learned so much um, from that experience. And so I think sometimes in life, I mean, I, I mean, this, I, I know this is common knowledge, but you just, you just have to go for it, right? You just have to be assertive and take action. Um, and you just can't wait for things to happen. And I think historically for um, Asian Americans, particularly college students, even high school students, they have uh, take action to their own hands um, in demanding um, a more diverse curriculum, whether it be from the 1960s, the civil rights era, or to now, right? Um, particularly in regards to, you know, in light of, uh, unfortunately, all the atrocious uh, murders of, of George Floyd and, and others uh, that have um, awakened many of us um, to take greater action, right? Uh, and so I think academia has responded um, in kind as well. And so henceforth, not only do you see more, a more diverse curriculum, but also um, more diverse teachers, right? Uh, more right. Uh, diverse uh, professors in colleges. And I think that's very important too. Uh, and so, and it just can't be a token representation, right? Where you just have one Asian American professor, one Black American professor, and one, uh, one uh, Latinx professor, that's it, right? Um, it, it's, I think it's, um, it's an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing fight, but I think we're, we're, we're making progress. You know, when I um, hear about that, the ongoing progress, and I think about, you know, stretching back, you know, back to 2005 and the early days of the 2000s, I think about your position uh, in in your position um, in regards to the students and it's predominantly, you know, it's Texas. So it's predominantly uh, white. Um, they probably lean a certain um majority lean a certain uh, political spectrum and um in the state and or come from families that you know are white and the way that they sit and they absorb the information coming from you um i i i'm thinking about you know are the the difference in the perspective of the students uh dating back in your early days of teaching uh, versus now i mean what are the differences uh in the way the students are coming and how they receive the information, how they um, process the information, how they respond to the different things that you uh, are teaching about? Wow, yeah, you're full of great questions today. Oh, uh, well, you. it's, I, I would argue, um, on one hand, the uh, the information age, of course, has, has exploded, right? And so there are so many um, sources that students could uh, attain and access today, much more so than, say, back, 2005, 2006. And so as a result, um, they're exposed to more good information, but also more bad information or more misinformation, right? And we saw that happen in, in uh, you know, the recent uh, US presidential elections and uh, to this very day, right? You still have a lot of um, uh, conspiracy theories uh, about the 2020 election results and, and about, uh, So in regards to students today, they have unfortunately more access to bad information, misinformation as well. And so 
whether it be online and internet or various social media platforms, that's where they get most of their news. And so consequently, um, a lot of these so-called news are not vetted properly or not legitimate sources. Uh, and so fortunately that feeds into the um, hysteria uh, and the increase in, in the number of conspiracy theories. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, um, regards to, for instance, in the 2020 election, right? There are still folks who believe that uh, there's a conspiracy uh, to um, a conspiracy that has um, stolen the election, right, uh, from Donald Trump. Uh, and it's just, and you hear such uh, stories of these just bizarre twists and um, uh, and just um, a plethora of misinformation that that would uh, uh, that would unfortunately misinform. Uh, a good percentage of uh, the U.S. population, right? Uh, much, and so, how much of this stuff are you dealing with in the classroom with students? Right. So, with students, not so much. Um, and I think, um, as far as um, the, as far as college students, usually college students, for the most part, they're, they 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 recognize the differences between, say, a legitimate source versus uh, an illegitimate source, right? Uh, or uh, a bad source, uh, and uh, most, um, or at least for my history class, my history classes, I, I do have students um, write a um, a paper on um, on uh, sources and analyzing sources and critiquing them whether or not they're legitimate sources and how so, and um, whether or not they're they're good to to utilize to analyze a topic, right? So I, I do have uh, assignment like, for instance, an annotated bibliography that students have to do. Or most recently this semester, have them read uh, since it was part, part of our comic book, uh, or it is our comic book uh, for this academic year, and, and a wonderful comic book. I uh, have them read Isabel Workerson's cast, uh, the origins are, uh, of its discontents, and uh, the origins of our discontents, excuse me. And they would uh, not only have to review the book, but they would also have to research and incorporate uh, two primary and two secondary sources about the major topics covered in that book, uh, whether it be caste or slavery or racism or the genocide of Native Americans or uh, the experience of Asian Americans with the Chinese Exclusion Act, et cetera. So students had to, um, they had to do the research and have to, of course, provide legitimate sources. Um, and, um, and I tell them, I mean, if, if you're looking for legitimate sources, start with um, .gov sources or .edu sources, right? Um, don't go to TikTok or Facebook to, to, to find sources and, and, and cite them as proper and legitimate sources. Do, do you get a, a, a chuckle from the class when you say, don't go to TikTok or Facebook? Or is it something that you're really seriously, you're really, that's a real directive from you? Yeah, I mean, it is a directive, but sometimes I can't help but laugh, you know, and, and it's, 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 you know, and I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it's, it, you do have, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of, adults right i mean a lot of um you know go, going beyond causes i mean even even adults or, or parents or grandparents right they 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 read all this bad information or misinformation um through video you know through various social media platforms and and also go just to bring it back to the vietnamese American community i mean there are a lot of unfortunately bad media sources right um whether it be in, in print media or um, in, in Vietnamese American news channels um, that, you know, our, our parents and grandparents listen to, right? Um, and so it's just... Um, I mean, heck, you don't yeah. even have to go to grandparents or parents. 
there are people <laughs> younger than us who are, you know, subscribing to this stuff. That's true. Right. And yeah, it's crazy. Know, it's, a, it's a it's a dilemma. I, I don't think it's just in the Vietnamese community. I think it's you know worldwide. I think it's you know this idea of algorithms and computer technology today, this day and age of you know it's cyber warfare. If you think about it, right? Like sure. we are being leveraged to fight from within. They don't need to lob a bomb and we don't need the, the shields to, 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 to block incoming nuclear warheads anymore. They're doing it from inside. You know, they, they, they have the mechanism now to, to do it from inside. And here's the thing. I think like when you think about the Chinese government versus the U.S. government, we are kind of here in the U.S. at a disadvantage, I think. When I think about, you know, the Chinese government probably can do whatever they want, however they want. They're not being checked. So they're doing whatever they want. The U.S. government is probably not, we're not probably, I, I don't know, I could be very off wrong and not, and very misinformed. But I think the the ability for the Chinese um, like farms or troll farms or to infiltrate and, and create misinformation in the U.S. is far higher and likelier than the other way around and sure, sure. i think it's a problem i mean it's a massive problem that we're going to be dealing with this in the next decade or two uh with very divided american thinking and that in itself is really fucking up the political process here in america right sure. absolutely yeah and and also the way we handle the pandemic right i mean yeah. all the misinformation about covid19 and so it's it's frustrating yeah i mean um not only as a as a instructor but also as a as a citizen of the u.s it's it's very frustrating to to, to witness um and it's unfortunate uh, all i can say is in regards to uh going back to to your question about the students and have they changed uh, for the most part i mean as far as what, what i witnessed and what i read about the papers and the reviews i mean they they seem to be aware or at least more aware of what is a legitimate source and what is not. Um, now, I can't go beyond that. I mean, I can only see or read um, what's been going on outside the classroom. And it's like you said, it is, uh, it is fucking up our, our political system. Yeah, it really is. It really is doing a lot of damage. And um, I uh, sometimes I get so pessimistic and, you know, I get really sad prospect of thinking about how... Um, under leveraged we are compared to you know forces outside of the US like Russia or China you know forces that are we're, we're having to come up against and it makes me you know really sad to think about the state of misinformation in the United States how much unfucking of this problem we as normal citizens can do i mean does the tech companies the the big YouTube and Facebook, these big social media companies need to jump in and do something about it? Or is it really impeding on our First Amendment uh Yeah, you know, First Amendment rights. Right. I, I think they, they absolutely do have uh, a social responsibility and a commitment, right, uh, to spell out uh, and, uh, and flag and uh, delegitimize these um, um, these uh, bad sources or, or misinformed uh, sources that uh, that uh, consistently misinform people, right, and and uh, divide our nation, right. And so I think Facebook, um, Instagram, well, although they're the same company, but 
uh, you know, TikTok, Snapchat, you, you name it, right? Um, all the uh, all the uh, social platforms. I mean, they, they the, the those companies that run those social platforms. I mean, they they have a social responsibility, right? Um, to to make sure that that such um, misinformation, uh, where you know you have you know so many trolls um, <laughs> controlling such platforms and and just uh, spewing a lot of um, a lot of poison, right? Uh, that uh, that are designed to be, of course, uh, more divisive and, and uh, to keep uh, the citizenry um, less informed, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's really, I agree. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I do wake up pessimistic and and unsure of you know what you know what can I possibly do, right? I'm just I'm just a community college professor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh yeah, it's it's frustrating. Um, but you know, at the same time, I, I guess. One way for me to maintain my sanity is that I, I try to focus on on things I can't control, right, and and um, do my best in, in the things I can control, and that is, say, for instance, in the classroom, help my students uh, in terms of educating them about legitimate sources online and and uh, and elsewhere. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I start to think about it and I look out and I'm, you know, look at the polarization uh, that's happening, and I'm like, are white people really that racist? Or has the computer algorithms created this sort of you know, division? Or because of social media, do we know more about the world and the way how Anglo-centric history has been written and we're now more aware? Or is it a combination of everything, you know? Algorithms and 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 being more aware and you know, it's creating more of a division instead of being more of a connected uh uh um, you know, I remember in the 90s, uh, as I was growing up and I, I served in the military, in the, in the Marines. And, you know, I remember being around all the white guys from the, you know, from the South and from the Midwest and lovable human beings who have turned into DEA agents, FBI guys, CIA guys. And probably those are the people that I'm standing on the opposing sides of today, I think on an intellectual level, right, in terms of like their beliefs and my beliefs. You know, I think there's a, there's probably, if 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 I was to take five of my best friends in during those years, in the Marine Corps, five of my white friends, and we stood up and sat, we sat down in the classroom today, we would probably be seeing the world in a very different, you know, light, uh, to today, but to but back then we were, we were very loving and, you know, we worked out together, we ate together, we. You know, we talked about the same books together, and we enjoyed the same movies. And um, yeah, I wonder about that often. I, you know, we didn't have Facebook back then, so I don't, I didn't keep up with any of the guys. But I often wonder about it. You know, it was much more tamer America uh, for me, at least, coming from uh, you know that that world in the '90s. Yeah, I think also, like you say, I think it's a combination of everything. I mean, I think. Just, just with the advent of um, of technology, right, and the advances uh, technology has uh, has made and has uh, made accessible, right, uh, to, to um, you know to more sources, uh, to to more people, right. And I think we're also more cognizant and aware of some of these social issues that continue to uh, plague our nation, right. And so, as a result, it may appear new to us uh but in reality such social issues have always been there mm. for generations right and they're just being they're just coming out um they're just coming uh, up to the surface right um or 
in some cases resurfacing, right? Um, and, and so for us, it may seem new, but uh, but in reality, yeah, it's it's nothing new, right? And back mm-hmm. in the '90s, uh, like I said, we, we had less access to information, right? And so the World Wide Web just started, right? And so yeah. we 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 rely on uh, on on books, you know, libraries, um, word of mouth, you know, our, our aunts and uncles, so forth for information, right? And we'll watch, of course, the local news as well, and uh, and so our our sources were were fairly limited, but at least um, they they seem to be more legitimate, right? Uh, than say you know the, the the billions of different news sources we have today, right? Uh, and so yeah, it's it's uh, like I say, it's it's, it's a important skill to learn um, and to continue to learn on on how to analyze and critique and dissect what uh, what is a legitimate source and what what is not. Um, and I think it's a very important skill, uh, particularly these days. Um, and so hopefully, at least like, you know, for my students, hopefully my students um, will be able to further improve um, on, on such skills. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, as far as personally, I mean, it's just, it is, it is mind boggling and, and sometimes uh, painful, right? Because it not only does divide us from, from our old friends or our neighbors, but also, uh, among family members. I mean, I don't know how it is with your family, but in regards to my my uh, immediate family, I mean, I, it's it's tough. I mean, when when say my parents cite something that that's not true about the 2020 election or it's not true about COVID-19, it's uh, it's challenging and it, it's and it's personal, right? I mean, I don't know if have, have you ever experienced anything like that with um, with uh, any of your uh, any of your family members? I mean, almost all of them. There's members I don't talk to anymore. And that's uh, not my choice. I mean, it's not like I cut them off. I mean, I've tried to call back a few times. I've talked about this on the podcast. It's like, it's heartbreaking because I value, obviously I value my friends very, very much, but I, I value my blood and my family even more. And it's heartbreaking when because of misinformation, you know, they're not calling back and they think that you're on one side or, you know, they, they think that, I think it's always been a belief that some of them have thought that, you know, my brother and I, we, uh, you know, happen to have gone to college and, you know, they think that we think that we're more informed. And that's just, you know, if we could just sit and have a conversation about certain things and not, you know, um, we've never even gotten an opportunity to sit down and talk to each other. And um, I I think there's just a line of demarcation, you know, in the, there's a line in the sand from, maybe a decade ago, automatically built there. And then all of a sudden these walls go up with the digital sort of like advent of social media and it becomes more polarized uh, in the family. You know, you see each other at a a wedding or a funeral, you say a few words, you kind of gauge where each other's at. And that's that. There is the fence. There's the wall. We're not crossing it. And you just sort of like drift and you don't, uh, you know, they say, one or two things about rifles and, and ammunitions and the storage of that. And you're just like, you know, it's like, uh, those are code words for certain things. And you're just like, okay, I can't engage into anything right now with you. Cause, and I think that that sort of like, it's an internal cold war in our families that create these schisms. And, you know, it's, it's a sad time. Cause I grew up with uh, a lot of my uh, uncles and fam, you know, cousins and, I miss them dearly. I miss the essence of who they are and the funny things that they said and all the wonderful memories. We're, I don't think that that's coming back anytime soon. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it's, as far as luckily, I mean, uh, knock on wood, I mean, we haven't built any walls uh, among, among uh, family members. Uh, but yeah, that have been you know painful conversations, of course, and uh, heartbreaking conversations, as you mentioned. That that uh, really that 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 really hurts, right? Because these are our family members. I mean, they're blood, right? And and so it's this difficult to, and challenging to try to navigate. Um, you know, conversations or issues that you may, you may, you may never, you may, uh, you may choose not to bring them up, but such topics would be brought up and you're forced to participate, right? And so, and, and then of course your participation would, uh, would offend others, right? And so it's just, um, your words would offend others, right? And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's challenging, but yeah, free person, I do try to um, focus on, I wouldn't say I won't call them lighthearted matters, but I would call them personal matters in the sense that, you know, whenever I, I have conversations with my siblings, for instance, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, lighthearted stuff like sports and, and travel and music. But in addition, we would, would talk about um, personal issues that, uh, that mean a lot to us. Like how, how are we going to take care of our parents when they get older and who should be taking care of them? And, and mom and dad are talking about funeral expenses and all that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how can we um, make them uh, more comfortable uh, in the last years of their lives, you know, et cetera. And so I think that helps pull family members together. Um, and so luckily for us, we, we do have uh, some strong common bonds that, that have kept us together. Um, at the same time, it hasn't been easy. I mean, I, and I'm sure, um, particularly in recent years, right, with, um, you see it with, um, you know, groups like Pivot, right? Um, these American progressives and, and others who had to, um, you know, experience these uh, painful conversations and schisms, uh, some permanent schisms, right, uh, within their own families because of uh, all the misinformation that's that that has um, that has polarized, right, uh, our society. And so, it's really unfortunate, and, and there's no simple answer or solution. Uh, but I think, you know, the first thing that that perhaps we could do is just try to go back to the 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 bonds that that don't break us right the bonds that we that we we, we hold sacred right and so i think if we start from there then maybe perhaps just such walls would would finally come tumbling down i don't know uh, but it works so far for us yeah We're far from perfect our family is far far from yeah. perfect but what if I, I just had a thought like as i'm talking to you what if this is sort of the way nature intended it to be that we do have schisms and we do have fallouts and we we branch away from each other to make each other stronger and we we might not meet back up in this lifetime but maybe the children of our children meet back up and you know there's new product you know if you a genetic product in terms of stronger ways of thinking are happening as i mean if you think about uh vietnam that that fallout created uh, a migration pattern and here we are uh, almost 50 years later with a different type of Vietnamese and maybe that is the result of some sort of natural order that that's meant to be and um, it's better for humanity well, perhaps I don't know <laughs> no that's, that's a very good point uh, yeah and going back to well, I mean, just going back to uh, you know taking control of our of our own 
um, narrative. I, I think, I think, I think that's human nature also. And I think the, the, the successes you see among Vietnamese Americans and the Vietnamese diaspora in general uh, are due to the fact that you have resilient survivors, right? Who use their ingenuity and crafty ways to, to survive. I mean, they, they had these survival skills, right? Not just from the war, but also from the exodus that made them stronger and that made them more determined and made them more resilient. And so I think you're right yeah, um, in regards to these schisms that we have within our own uh, respective families, perhaps that's, that's what we need to go through, right? In order to be stronger and more resilient and to, in the end, persevere. And like I said, maybe that's nature's way of telling us uh, that, uh, not that it's okay that it's schism, but it's not uncommon and that it's in a way natural to have such schisms yeah. and, and that we, we have to confront such schisms rather than just ignore them, right? Uh, and so we have to learn how to deal with such schisms. I, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So now I want to cross over to um, something that's related, uh, which is critical race theory. Um, I have read, you know, I've looked it up and I, I kind of read about it and I don't, um, I don't fully understand it deeply enough. And I wanted to use this um, time today to ask you about the history of it, uh, the political nature of it, um, everything about it, uh, because I've asked other guests that I've had on uh, if they felt comfortable coming back on to to talk about this idea and you know some some have said no and uh they just don't feel uh that they know enough to uh, comment about it or to kind of give a little mini lecture about it so i wanted to ask you um where you're you know uh with your professional background i would love to hear um a little bit of of, of history and and the way uh it's you know taught in schools and the way we should think about it Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, I, again, I, I think we talked about this uh, before. Um, I, I'm not, you know, my my field of study isn't specifically critical race theory, but I do talk about race and racism as well as uh, caste and casteism uh, in in U.S. history. And uh, uh, basically, the, the the bottom line is, um, in regards to critical race theory, it's it's a um, it's a idea that um, students uh, in a classroom uh, should have opportunity to participate or uh, well, to learn, participate and engage um, on uh, race uh, related matters and issues, particularly in regards to systemic racism or institutional racism, right? And so it's important for students to be fully aware of the fact that in the history of the United States, uh, as well as other countries, you have a, um, a system uh, that uh, is designed to ensure that a group of people would uh, be permanently cast uh, at the bottom rung of the social ladder, right? Uh, or the bottom cast of a social hierarchy, right? Uh, and so in regards to uh, caste, I mean, caste is, um, is, is a social construct, say, as is race, race is a social construct, but race is used to, um, enforce a caste system. And so going back to institutional racism or systemic racism, you have a system or you have a number of institutions that are by design uh, to um, unfortunately um, dehumanize 
uh, groups of people, right? So easy example would be slavery, right? Uh, and so for much of US history, you have uh, unfortunately a, a history of uh, slavery that uh, dehumanized and, and brutalized millions of, of people, right? Millions of black people. And in addition to that, um, you have uh, the genocide of, of uh, indigenous peoples in, in um, North America. And then furthermore, you have um, the marginalization of immigrants, um, whether they be from Europe, um, you know, from Ireland and Italy and Sicily and Eastern Europe um, during the 19th century, uh, or from Asia, right, uh, with, uh, with the Chinese and Japanese and uh, South Asian immigrants coming to the U.S. in the 19th century and, and then in post-1965 uh, with the changes in immigration laws, um, a larger influx of Asian immigrants coming to the U.S. Uh, and then more recently, right, with the uh, immigrants um, coming from um, Latin American countries, you know, Central or South America, as well as from Africa, right? Uh, and um, a lot of uh, these migrants are actually refugees, right? Um, who um, are from war-torn countries uh, or countries that are negatively affected, uh, uh, violently affected by drug cartels um, and so on. And so th they, they have legitimate reasons in regards to why they're uh, fleeing to uh, other countries, right? In hopes of reselling um, their, their lives elsewhere and, and start a new life. Uh, but in regards to um, going back to critical race theory, it's important that students are educated and aware uh, that you have um, systemic racism um, and that you have a caste system uh, in America and around the world. Going back to what you're saying about uh, what's, you know, what, you know, what is nature trying to tell us? And I think in part, um, it's related to this in, in the sense that um, nature, I believe, is also telling us that we have the right as a human being uh, to uh, resist and necessarily overthrow a system that perpetuates racism, right? Uh, a system that perpetuates sexism and, and so on. And so it's the, the, the fight and the struggle has only become more, um, um, more, uh, more, I want to say, um, ubiquitous, right, um, and, and more um, prominent, in, particularly in the last couple of years, right, um, particularly with um, um, the, the growing of the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and then uh, with the, all the ugly attacks on, on uh, Asian Americans um, in the last couple of years, it has really um, exacerbated the the, the polarization, as you mentioned, of, of our country. But at the same time, uh, on the other end, uh, it has uh, forced us, or as nature has, has, has been trying, I guess, to, to show us that we need to stand up and we need to uh, fight for our, our right to not exist, but to be perceived as human beings, right? And to be treated as human beings. And so I think that's why it's important to teach students about race and racism and uh, teach uh, students uh, that um, if we don't talk about racism, then how do you expect racism to, to go away, right? Uh, and you surely can't minimize the, uh, the racial violence and injustice of the past, right? 
Uh, instead, you have to confront them and you have to discuss and deliberate over them uh, in order to move forward. And I think for those who oppose the teachings of critical race theory, uh, now the focus is more on K through 12 and not in higher education, but nevertheless, um, they, I think for opponents of critical race theory, their focus is on, well, I don't want my kids to know about the ugly past of, of the United States. It's too confrontational. It's too awkward. Uh, it makes my children feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I think, uh, and I, of course, you know, um, for parents, I mean, I understand that they want to uh, give their students, I will give their children the best education, right? But I would argue that um, perhaps parents should give their students uh, a little more leeway uh, to discover on their own, discover for themselves what issues of race, class, gender, et cetera, uh, that they find uh, uh, most interesting and that they want to learn more and they want to know more. And so in other words, I think um, perhaps parents should give uh, their own children more, more credit, right? In regards to their curiosity uh, of wanting to know more about all these so-called uh, ugly, uh, ugly issues, right? Okay, so, so that's why it's very important that, I mean, hopefully, more parents would, would come to the understanding that teaching critical race theory is not about shaming your kids. It's not about making kids feel uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's more about learning, again, learning about our past, learning about history, so that we could better stand where we are today and therefore take better action in the future. But do you really think that parents who are against teaching critical race theory are really worried about the awkward conversation and sort of like valuing their precious time in the classroom. Do you think that it's more about not wanting to have the conversation or is it just a really downright racist, like that's not even stuff that we want to discuss because you guys aren't really important. That's just like not even important to us. Why? So what is it? Do you, I mean, if it's your guess, do you think that this is such a big deal because, you know, oh, it's a waste of time and we don't want it to be awkward? Or it's like, no, 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 no. We are the majority and there's no reason to discuss that because the way we see it is how it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, unfortunately, it's a combination of both, right? Where there will be some parents who are just adamantly opposed to uh, having a critical race theory be taught at K through 12. And so... Their, their, their stance is that, no, we don't want to hear it. We, we, you know, we don't want to talk about it. We just want to, you know, shove those issues uh, underneath the rug and, and not, you know, not, not deal with it. You know, hear no evil, see no evil, right? Uh, and so, uh, it, it, it historically, that's, you know, unfortunately, I mean, that's not uncommon. I mean, you, you had back in the um, um, mid-19th century, in the 1800s, right? Uh, before the Civil War, you have, Southern representatives in Congress who represent the interests of the Southern slave owners and not, not the poor Lannis whites or not the black slaves, uh, but but the the elite uh, wealthy uh, Southern um, slave owners and and they would um, try to uh, one uh, justify slavery, calling uh, slavery as um, as a well what's called a positive good thesis that that the uh, that the institution of slavery was a positive good, um, not just for the slave owners, but for the slaves themselves as well, because the slaves, you know, they're, they're, too, they're too stupid and 
too unintelligent um, and inferior to take care of themselves. So thankfully, they had the slave owners to take care of them. So, uh, so yeah, the positive the thesis that that slave owners or that uh, well, slave owners and southern politicians would espouse uh, to justify the institution of slavery. And then, of course, I'm sure you have white man's burden. Um, you have um, southern representatives of Congress. Um, espousing white man's burden, arguing that slavery is not only a positive good for the slaves, but guess what? It's a burden on the, the, the slave owners themselves, on the white slave owners themselves. Uh, never mind the fact that, you know, slaves are being brutalized and, and beaten and, and flogged and, and being forced to work from sun up to sundown for six days a week for the rest of their lives without compensation. Uh, so Crazy. never mind all that. It's a burden on the slave owners. So so you're right. I mean, fast forward to today. Yeah, you have, um, um, well, let me finish the, the other spectrum is that of some of these Southern um, uh, politicians um, during the 1830s, 1840s, they would oppose what's called the gag rule in Congress where uh, they would not, where you where um, their, their colleagues cannot, uh, the fellow congressmen cannot um, talk, uh, deliberate, or, or discuss about slavery or introduce any anti-slavery petitions in Congress. And so the gag rule was in place from 1836 to 1844. In other words, they didn't want to hear about slavery. They just don't even want to talk about it, right? Uh, and so there's precedent, right, uh, in regards to uh, opponents of critical race theory today, right? They don't want to talk about racism. They think it's not necessary. And they think, you know, who cares? So what? It's done with. Uh, Etc. Um, and then to, to add to that, I think particularly in recent years, unfortunately, um, some folks in, in that group uh, of people who oppose critical race theory have uh, felt more emboldened, right, uh, to to flaunt their anti-Asian racism or um, uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric, right, uh, and to to um, to embrace their uh, the idea that whites are superior, right? And, and to flaunt it as well, as if it's a fact. And so it's just, it's disheartening and it's, um, it's troubling, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm being a little bit optimistic when I say this, but I, I do think that I, will, I would like to argue that most, most folks and most parents um, would be open uh, to have uh, their their children to, um, you know, whether it be, say, I don't know, um, in seventh grade, we had Texas history. So I guess in seventh grade, you have California history. So maybe in California history, um, school children should learn about how California was colonized and how you have the displacement of Mexican-Americans after the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, but I mean, as far as you're, I mean, as a parent, I mean, um, as far as uh, how, how I, I know you mentioned that your children are, are three and five. Uh, and so I assume they're not, yeah, they're not in kindergarten yet, but, but as far as their, their future education, I mean, um, I assume that you, uh, you, you want them to be exposed to all these isms out there so that they could be better informed. Right. And so, yeah, I want parent, them to be able to sit at a table and be able to listen to the debate and be a part of the discussion and not walk away and shun it and, have anything be awkward. I think they should have the ability to, and the opportunity to listen to all sides of the, 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 the conversation. Why, why would we limit anything? I think they should be able to hear everything and process. And we need to trust the younger generation to 
process, you know, what information comes in their mind and let them decide what's right. Um, I think that that's the only way to make a better place and have long form conversations, not TikTok conversations about <laughs> all this. Or texting, right? 40 characters or whatever. I mean, I'm sorry, on Facebook, 40 characters. Yeah, but I, I mean, uh, yeah, as far as, it, it, but it goes back to what we discussed earlier about, um, about why our, our stories are so important. Uh, and that is, the, as far as those who oppose critical race theory, not only are they trying to refuse um, any debate or discussion or deliberation over, over uh, um, issues of race and ethnicity and so on, but also there's, there's an attempt to erase the past, right? To erase, erase the ugliness of the past, to erase history. And that's, that's very ominous and dangerous, right? If we, if we selectively erase history. Um, again, going back to my favorite novel was 1984, um, where the protagonist, right? Uh, um, his, his role was to change up the news, right? And erase some of the uh, facts and, and come up with uh, new, new facts, alternative facts, right? So it's, yeah, it's just, um, it's, it's, uh, it becomes dangerous, right? When, when history is erased. And I think, um, you know, as a Vietnamese American, you know, when, when, when people say, when I'm Vietnamese speak about say the war or about Vietnamese refugees or Vietnamese Americans as new Americans, it's, um, it can be a little, little bit um, humbling, but also a little bit, frightening right at the same time when uh, when whether to make um positive or um or negative um negative comments right about Vietnamese Americans and I think it's 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 important that we that we stand up to ourselves right and uh, and speak our stories and your podcast is one great channel right where we can share our stories and um and that allow us to not only share our story, but but to make sure that our history isn't erased, that our history isn't invisible, right? And I think it's imperative that we make sure uh, that uh, our history gets to be told by by us and not just by outsiders, right? Uh, and I think for uh, proponents, supporters of critical race theory, I think um, I'm sure they are thinking, where we are thinking that, uh, yeah, that's, that's vital. Uh, that's imperative that we make sure that uh, slavery doesn't get erased in, in the history textbooks, right? Uh, or the displacement of Mexican-Americans doesn't get erased in textbooks or or that the Chinese exclusion acts don't get erased yep. in, in US history textbooks. You know, we've been talking for, you know, uh, the last hour. Oh, wow, right, yeah. Yeah, a little bit more. Um, and, you know, we talked about history, but there's a whole other side to you, uh, this whole idea of, farms and plant planted uh you know we haven't discussed yet and uh i want to know um when that started uh when these uh narratives or ideas of 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 why um you know farming is is an important thing well uh just um just as a <laughs> clarification as, as a disclaimer i i cannot farm i cannot garden okay. I, I have yeah. brown thumbs uh, and same for for my wife. I know she's more highly skilled in and uh, carpentry and, and, and other uh, other areas. Uh, but as far as yeah, I have brown thumbs. And we, we do have a couple house plants that are still alive. But um, aside from that, yeah, we have brown thumbs. But it comes back from our parents. I mean, not just mine, but hers as well. And uh, uh, my aunts and uncles too. I mean, they 
ever since uh, they started their new lives in, in the United States, they, um, they have, uh, well, particularly for my parents, they were, when they finally settled into their home with a backyard, with an abundant space, um, uh, with a big yard, they, uh, would, uh, they would plant some things. And um, growing up, I didn't think much of it, you know, in terms of why they were growing, you know, a variety of uh, melons and, and, uh, and herbs and uh, fruit trees. Uh, and I didn't think much of it until really in more recent years uh, when I, I began to look more into, um, uh, you know, um, food studies and, and food history. And um, that got me interested in, in writing about Vietnamese Americans and their, their kitchen gardens or their home gardens, I like to say, because these, these spaces, no matter how small or big um, and no matter what they, what they grow, it um, does does help them maintain their Vietnamese identity. Um, and so um, the, the, the themes I like to focus on um, are uh, food sovereignty, um, the uh, homeland duality and, um, and colonial citizenship. And so those are the three themes that I, uh, that I usually focus on. Um, and uh, in regards to food sovereignty, I mean, think about Vietnamese refugees. And I'm sure, you know, you mentioned you talked to your mom and dad and, I'm sure to share stories how they struggled early on, right? I mean, our parents struggled mightily early on, and you know, there was no H Mart back then, right? Uh, and uh, it was hard to gain access to herbs and and, and fruits and vegetables that they uh, were much more familiar with back in Vietnam, right? Uh, and so, bitter melons uh, and uh, oh, jute leaves uh, and white eggplants. Uh, were not available at, at your local Kroger. Um, and so, or, or I guess I don't know what we have in California, but in Texas we have, Kroger is pretty popular in Texas. I don't know what, what it is in California, but, but, but you get the idea. So mainstream grocery stores didn't carry these Vietnamese herbs and fruits and vegetables. And so as a result, um, they would plant their own kitchen gardens and their home gardens, right? And so they would plant a variety of herbs and um, and, um, you know, bitter melons, right? Uh, which I don't get because it's very bitter. I know you have bitter, I'm sure you have bitter melon, but. Oh, no, that's very, my very favorite. Bitter. It's what? Bitter, bitter melon's my favorite. <laughs> Seriously, wow. Yeah, I love it. And it's, I have other friends that love it too. Okay, it's it's really good for your health. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's the reason I, I just can't get into bitter melon. Um, but, but no, my friends like yourself who, who, who really, who really enjoy eating bitter melons. And so they'll pass it on to their children too. It's like, wow. Uh, so yeah, in consequently, such, um, such produce helped them um, become uh, or gain some control, right? Over their diet and nutrition. And so therefore they had uh, regained their food sovereignty, right? Um, their control over what they could consume, what's accessible, what's fresh and what's affordable, right? For, for Vietnamese refugees. Uh, and so these home gardens would provide um, all of that uh, for them. And so food sovereignty is obviously very important for marginalized communities, right? Uh, and so it's not just among Vietnamese Americans, but you also see it in, um, um, in, in low-income neighborhoods, right? Where you have marginalized populations cultivating small, um, small kitchen gardens or, or home gardens, uh, whatever spaces are available, even in abandoned abandoned lots um, that would cultivate community gardens. So it's quite fascinating. Uh, and then in regards to homeland duality, it, uh, 
it allows for these mega home gardeners to uh, be not only more connected to uh, to their Vietnam in the past by by growing, caring, cultivating, and, and then consuming such produce uh, that they made, um, that they nurtured. Um, but also it helps them be more rooted um, in the United States because it allows them to feel more comfortable uh, in the U.S. And, and have some more control over their own lives, right? So when you're growing and planting something, you have more, you feel you have a greater sense of control of what, right. of what you could uh, make and what you could consume, right? So it makes them feel more rooted uh, here in the United States as well. And then finally, in regards to um, culinary citizenship, and, and I'm sure your, your parents, uh, you know, have, have done this, um, and, and your friends and, your, and their parents have done this, where they would uh, use their herbs and and fruits and and um, and, and vegetables to make a variety of, of Vietnamese dishes that are that are good comfort food, right? So use chut leaves to to make gan dai, for instance, right? Uh, use bitter melons to to make bitter melon soup, right? Uh, and uh, use uh, um, and use uh, you know cilantro and and Thai basil and and variety of mints uh, uh, as garnishes, right? Um, and so yeah, we we are rolling uh, like one, you know, spring rose or some people call it summer rose. Yeah, uh, Vietnamese home gardeners they would uh, use their the herbs in backyards. Um, uh, to uh, to help them make spring rolls uh, or summer rolls, and so it it ex- it helps them establish uh, culinary citizenship, right? Where they get to not only preserve Vietnamese food um, by using such homegrown produce to to make a variety of um, Vietnamese dishes that are comfort food, but also uh, extend uh, Vietnamese food or expand Vietnamese food to others, right? Um, to say new friends or or um, or to um, you know. Uh, to colleagues and coworkers, uh, I'm sure you have you know uh, many times before at your house you know have have guests who who never exposed to certain you know uh, Vietnamese dishes or or bitter melons, and, and so yeah you had an opportunity to introduce and expand Vietnamese food ways to them, and I'm sure they were very grateful and appreciative of that as well. So as a result, it, it helps us uh, it helps Vietnamese Americans establish culinary citizenship, right, to protect, preserve, expand. Vietnamese uh, cuisine in the United States, Vietnamese food waste in the United States. Um, of course, it's not, you know, I'm not focusing on, on, on uh, you know, the, the, the legal term of citizenship, right? This is not legal citizenship per se, but right. more so a, a greater sense of belonging, right? A greater sense of belonging here in the United States uh, where they have um, some control of their own lives and, and what they consume. And they, they feel more uh, emboldened where they have, they believe that they have a right to be here in the United States, right? Um, for for you know a number of good reasons, right? Um, not just the war, uh, and not just the fact that you know the United States was there, so therefore we are over here. Um, but but also the fact that um, that as you know as citizens, right, of this land, um, you, you have for these American home guards, they they are maintaining food ways uh, and preserving food ways that could be taught to the next generation, right? Uh, and so you do see. For instance, uh, the second generation as well as uh, the third generation, right? Learning how to garden, um, you know, um, herbs and, and fruits that are very common, right? Uh, commonly eaten in, in Vietnamese households. And so I think that's great. That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, as, as far as culinary citizenship, I think it, it's very important to continue to preserve and expand um, uh, Vietnamese cuisine, uh, not just for our future generations, but also uh, for non-Vietnamese uh, people as well. 
What do you think the Vietnamese fourth, fifth generations will look like? Do you think it'll end up like the Chinese and the Japanese American sort of um, mold? Or do you think it'll be more uh, culturally, um, will be more, you know, retaining more of our culture uh, from Vietnam? Uh, that's another great question. I, I hope it's the latter. I mean, I, I don't know. I really don't know what's what's going to happen next. But I hope the future generations, the third, fourth, uh, fifth generations, um, would would uh, embrace their their Vietnamese heritage, uh, like their Vietnamese food heritage, for instance. And I think that's very important uh, for them because it will help them again be not only connected to um, their Vietnamese ancestry, but also uh, it would in the long run help them be more comfortable of, of who they are, right? As Vietnamese Americans, so therefore, they're, they're going to feel more uh, rooted and in, in gain a greater sense of belonging here in the United States, particularly since uh, historically and to this day, you know, oftentimes uh, Vietnamese as well as, you know, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, we, we, we are viewed as foreigners, right? And we always, and, and, and sometimes, it's, you know, people ask innocently, which is fine, but they'll, they'll ask me, and I'm sure you've been asked a million times, um, Oh, where, where are you from? And and I'll respond, oh, I'm from Houston, Texas. And then no, where are you really from? Look and they'll say, no, really, where, where are you from? And then I have to clarify and say, well, my parents were born in Vietnam, but I was born in Houston, Texas, you know? So there's that, like you said, that Asian face that we have, right? And so hopefully by the, by by their generations, it, our faces will become the face of America too, right? Uh, in other words, the American face shouldn't just be an angle face, right? Um, it could be a, it could be an Asian face, for instance, right? Yeah, um, I mean, it, was, it should be diverse, right? Yeah. H have you heard of BTS? Yes, yes, I've heard of BTS. Yeah, and you know, like all of us, we probably have heard of them, and you know, it's a boy band, and you know, uh, at our at our age, <laughs> I don't know like, any of their songs though. That's the thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm, me, I'm out of touch with pop culture. Me too. I I you know I I, I know about them and. I know that they've had a, a strange stronghold on people that are my age here in LA and on the West coast. Oh, wow, really? Okay. My age. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, so I went to their concert, um, last week. Uh, one of my friends invited me, uh, Bao Nguyen, uh, invited me and we had terrific, uh, seats and we got to, you know, watch the concert and, I had a transformation, had a transformative ex experience uh, at this concert because I began to understand the message of BTA, BTS. And for, for a, a long time in that concert, uh, I began to really understand how important uh, inclusion is, but not in, in, in a traditional sense where in America we have this idea of inclusion, but now, from a global perspective, from a global sense, these kids from Korea were making the entire world understand what in, what inclusion is, and that goes for you know sexual orientation or or financial caste, uh, socioeconomic uh, standing. They really did a great job on making you feel included, including this forty six year old Vietnamese American man who has no idea anything about pop culture you know it just the whole message of the band and 
you know, I think it was the concert was two hours or, or whatever. I mean, total music time, maybe an hour, hour and a half. The other 45 minutes, these guys were just talking to their audience. Huh, it was wow. the most crazy thing. Uh, the the amount of, you know, they would literally, seven of them stand in the line and they would just go around and, you know, it's like they would say their 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 spiel. They would say their what they had to say. And, you know, three of them spoke English. Four of them had to go through Korean to English translation. And, you know, you go through the crowds and there was like Latino women. There were Latino babies and kids. And they're obviously a lot of Asians and so many white women and, and, and girls and black girls. And it was so diverse. And um, I think it was like, I, I, I can't remember the company that promoted it, but Live Nation or, or one of these big companies, it was the most profitable uh, concert uh, they've had in like 18 years or, or, or something. Wow. Um, so it's it's quite a phenomenon. And the most important takeaway that I'm sitting here talking to you about is seven uh, faces that were Asian male faces that uh, have now um, really planted a seed in uh americans minds americans saying like this is the ideal version of handsome this is the ideal version of good looks and they're some of them were very androgynous you know very soft features but you know nonetheless symmetrical and handsome young men that were some had very soft uh, face facial features um and that's the new that's the new asian uh, stronghold, I guess the the way we we view these these seven men from Korea, and I used to in the whole year of doing this podcast, I used to say, how do we beat the Koreans? How do we you know what do we do uh, with our films and our music to be? Now I'm like I look at it totally different. You know, can we be more inclusive? Can we be more inclusive than BTS? And that is my my main takeaway. And uh, uh, then my next guest uh, in a few more. Oh, tomorrow, actually, I'm going to speak to a super fan. She, before the concert, she sent us all a PDF, uh, a slide, a deck on BTS and explained wow. it. And it was detailed and broke down the characters and, and you know, all of the, the, the different facts. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to sit here to talk U.S. history, Asian American history with you, um, but also have this sort of like... Uh, opportunity to speak to a guest uh, who's Vietnamese American who uh, is a um, a huge BTS fan she's going to explain BTS to me uh, in an episode that we're going to do so that's awesome you know, we're in a no, totally different place well you you uh you just um uh, and by the way happy birthday I forgot oh, uh, last you. Monday right it was yes birthday, so thank happy you for birthday um and um yeah you, you raise a very uh important uh issue and, and that is the just the fact that for Asian men, right? There's been this long negative um, stereotype and, and negative uh, and racist narrative about um, about Asian American men uh, not being um, not being uh, handsome or not being um, not being considered as uh, the uh, as Libros and in, in, in characters in Hollywood films, right? And so, in addition, of course, there's a history of Hollywood yellowface, right? Um, that that, uh, that of course is not uncommon, unfortunately, of Hollywood blackface as well. But regards to uh, the the ways in which um, um, Hollywood and and uh, the media would uh, emasculate Asian American men, right? It's refreshing to see, as you mentioned, seven young, handsome um, Korean and Korean American men uh, being uh, embraced, right, and being popular 
um, by, uh, and, and be accepted, right? Um, by, by a diverse crowd, right? That you witnessed uh, at, the, at the concert. And I think that's, uh, now, now, now you're beginning to make me believe it. I need to watch uh, BTS videos. I've never seen a BTS video. I mean, I've seen them like on talk shows every now and then, but yeah, I need to hear more about them. <laughs> Yeah, I, more I, about them I'm told it's, it's, it's that, amazing what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I'm told that once you go down that YouTube rabbit hole, BTS rabbit <laughs> hole, you're going to you're going to go through it and uh, you will come out the other end as a fan and uh, part of their army, they call it. Right. And I think it's great. I mean, again, as, as you as you know, I mean, there's this uh, history of, uh, of emasculating Asian American men. Right. And uh, and it's just. It's a fortunate byproduct of, of racism, right? Uh, and so and it's racism that's been perpetuated for many years. And so I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that BTS is there. And I hope there'll be more BTS in the future. Vietnamese and Vietnamese American BTS, for instance. Absolutely. That's, uh, uh, that's, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. So maybe you and I should start a, a boy band. Yeah, I'm totally down. Like, let's get the, I, I got five more guys and, you know, there you go. it's never too late. No, today. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Let's start recording music. Yeah. You got the long hair. I think we're, we're ready to rock this. <laughs> speaking of long hair, um, speaking of all jokes aside, um, have you been to Vietnam? No, no, I haven't. And in, in, in part, a big reason is because my parents are um, staunch anti-communist. And so it would break their hearts if I travel to Vietnam and visit Vietnam. Uh, that say, I think they have mellowed out in, in recent years, and um, their anti-communism isn't so, um, or it's less apparent these days. I think it's part of it is because of ageism. You know, getting older, and and they're focusing less on you know on, on engaging in political discussions and debates, uh, and just focusing on living healthier lives. And so, uh, I think the, I mean, I'm not saying there'll be a more they'll be acceptable to fight if I say if I go to Vietnam next year. But yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to go to Vietnam. I mean, I've been wanting to go to Vietnam for years, but the other part of it is that, you know, there's that uh, filial piety, right? Uh, yeah. That a lot of uh, Asian American kids um, feel toward uh, their parents, right? Where we, we were taught to, 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 to be obedient, right? And respectful to our parents and grandparents uh, and, and their wishes. And so it's just, it's uh, for me, it's, yeah, it's, um, but damn, it's a conflicting issue for me. But don't, don't you think? Don't you think that for one last time, one last hurrah to explain to them, like, guys, come on, this is a totally different place now from where you left exactly. it, and don't you want to go back to where you came from one last time? You know, it it just boggles my mind. I mean, I I know a lot of people, my mom's friends, uh, they're they're the same way. And it just, it rocks my world to think that, wow, you don't give a shit about the place that you came from. Just one last time and just to see, you know, like where it's, where it came, where, where, where it came from and where it is today, you know, and, and say one last goodbye to the place that you grew up in, you know, it, it, there has to be so much hurt and pain for people to say no, we're good. We're we're, we're not doing that. Yeah, and, and that is true. I mean, I mean, my parents lost two kids, you know, in Vietnam, and so I think it's just, I don't know, um, it's just very painful for them to talk about. It, going back to recording stories, right? It's it's like you. Know, it was very difficult to talk to my parents about the war and about oh. the refugee experience, etc. Um, 
and it's understandable, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. You you had me at two losing two kids. I I guess I would never make that argument now. Yeah, so it brings about painful memories, right? So it's just it's tough yeah. for them, but but it's just but at the same time, like you said, I mean, you know, um, I have I have aunts and uncles who've been back to Vietnam um, several times. My wife's been to Vietnam, um, and uh, her parents have been to Vietnam um several on several occasions and um uh, my friends and their parents they've been to vietnam as well but that's say i mean i, I don't I, you're more familiar with orange county than i am but but i i every now and then i will hear news from the BBC community in orange county but in houston uh not so much in dallas but in houston i mean you do have it's pretty much a, a still you know the strong same, right? anti-communist community um and i'm sure it's the same way with orange county correct yeah it's the same but you know things are changing people are going back more and you know those who are anti-communists are kind of, you know, they're seeing a different side of Vietnam that that's changing their minds as well. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, things are changing, but, uh, if, you know, if you don't mind, like how old were, uh, your siblings when, um, they passed away, uh, in Vietnam when they left your parents? Uh, my older brother, Vu, and thanks for asking. My older brother Vu was uh, five years old and my older sister, I mean, I believe she was just only a few months old. Yeah, I can see if they if yeah, that's I, I just I, I I understand it now. I mean, I can relate to to that. I can relate to the loss of two children and not wanting to go back to a place that's so dark. I mean, that's a dark memory. And, um, right. you know, that's I'm I'm kind of now being more empath empathetic and, and opening my heart to understanding that narrative as well, because I never understood that, you know, um, I never had any room in my heart to, to accommodate the people who uh, said no to Vietnam and, and, you know, the pain, the suffering that they went through and, you know, definitely hearing that parents lost two kids on the way out uh, or, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's gut wrenching. Yeah, it is. And it was toward the last year of the war. Um, and um, well, uh, let me ask you this. It's uh, well, two questions. First of all, uh, what about uh, your your aunts and uncles? Have they all been back to Vietnam, or do they have painful memories of Vietnam too, it's where they don't want to go to Vietnam? No, it's it's divided. Uh, the women but, love to go, and the men love to go. It's clearly divided on my mom's side. On my dad's side, everybody's passed away. Uh, most of them. Uh, my father and his brother came to the U.S. Uh, my bro my father came in '75. My uh, the brother came in '92. I think uh, much later. Um, but the other half of his family, you know, stayed in Vietnam and, you know, they lived their days out and they, three of them passed away in Vietnam and never saw the U.S. Uh, and my mom's side, everybody made it to the U.S. And all the women, um, I think my mom has gone the most because my brother lives in Vietnam for 18 years now. And I go back uh, twice a year, three times a year with, uh, with her or without her. And um, the uncles have all gone back. Um they 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 love going back and the aunts uh, don't have any interest, but they're very well, my, uh, yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. What were you gonna ask? Oh well, my my second question is um, so with your with your two children, I mean, I'm sure you're gonna encourage them to, to go to Vietnam um, over and over um, throughout their uh, you know well, hopefully in their um, in their developmental years as well as into their teenage and adult years. But also, I was gonna ask you um, what what do you foresee uh your two children when they grow up to be adults uh regards to how much of their business they would retain 
I have a problem, a big pro bigger problem than Vietnamese culture. I think they're going to spend too much time. I'm not making a joke here. They're going to be spending too much time in the metaverse to even give a shit. <laughs> I, I hope that at some point these episodes are downloadable for them and they can just ingest it into their memory bank and make it be a part of their sort of their way of thinking and their they just so they, it can be a part of their a chip in their memory you know a compartment in their memory like this is what their father was into you know and i, I don't know if i you know i'm i'll be happy if they can just exist healthy in in the metaverse and not uh you know choose and opt out of living and you know becoming this uh you know um, virtual uh existent uh sentient uh thing on a chip you know i i i think about that more than the cultural side i you know the cultural side of what i'm doing is you know really for me because i think you can I, I you probably can relate with me on this is um, being born in the U.S., uh, we uh, we we identify a certain way. We look at things a certain way, and and oftentimes uh, there's two ways of looking at the same thing, and there's no answer sometimes. And um, and and you experience it once you go back to Vietnam. The the it, it's such a weird thing. I'm just like, wait, I, am I one of them or am I one of these guys? You know, it's and. You know, and the kids that are born uh, much later, uh, I don't think that they're grappling with that same uh, issue. Uh, I don't hear it. Um, the the much younger uh, uh, kids that are Vietnamese, I mean, uh, they're they're literally worrying about where they're going to be living in the metaverse, and I think that it's a foregone conclusion. But uh, I do this for me, and I, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm perpetually digging for answers uh, in terms of uh, the beauty of our culture and. It's sort of like um, a museum for me, you know, I uh, get to collect uh, these wonderful personalities and, you know, um, hopefully at some point I can start having previous guests back on. But now I have so many new guests that I, I keep wanting to, 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 um, to, uh, to, to check out and, and, and learn more about. Um, but at some point I, I do want to, um, you know, have uh, different people back on um, that I've had throughout the year. Well, that's a terrific problem to have. Too many guests, right? That's a great problem to have. And hopefully, maybe one of these days, if if you um, if you know if if it's your 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 wish, perhaps maybe these um, these interviews would be donated to an archive, right? So that way, it'd be preserved for you know in perpetuity, right? Uh, and so then that way, generations after could could have access to these videos, and scholars can have access to these videos too. Uh, and that's just the general public. Um, but just, you know, of course, these these are your your videos, your interviews. So I think it's fantastic that you're recording uh, so many uh, people from all walks of life um, to help us better define what it is to be Vietnamese. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully your children will uh, get a kick out of them and, yeah. and watch them too. Well, you know, what's really trippy is, um, you know, like if to sit with you is is relatively simple because you know I don't know you and you know I don't know of you and to sit here to ask questions about somebody like you it's it's simple because your responses trigger more questions but when when I'm when I have people that are the trajectory of of this uh, podcast has people who everyone knows you know in the community both in Vietnam and the U.S. 
you know, people we see on, on talent shows or people that we know in our pop, pop culture growing up. Um, I'm having issues of some sort of like different blocks because everybody knows them. And it's like, well, what can I really ask that people don't know um, at some point? Because culturally, it's they're everywhere and people know who they are. And so, you know, I relish uh, this time in the early days of the podcast to be able to sit with uh, people who are doing important work um, that are relatively unknown. Um, and, and that to me is the most satisfying thing. And then eventually I get to the people who are, you know, um, the world knows a little bit more about, but, uh, you know, these times for me, uh, the next year, um, the last year and the next year, um, being able to sit and, and talk to, um, a real diverse uh, group of Vietnamese people throughout the world is, is a, a, a unique treat. Well, I'm glad to be here. And thank you again for inviting me. This has been a great joy um, and a wonderful experience. And thank you, feel Roy. free to stay in touch and, and ask more questions. And I'm sure I'm going to ask you more questions too. I think the next time we get, we, we uh, hopefully it's not the end of the United States or some massive riot. <laughs> <laughs> but right. I mean, I, I can see that's when like, I'm going to go, hey, Roy, let's get back on the on a, on a, on an episode and let's discuss what's going on in, in, a, in American politics right now. Cause I think that those right. are, those are, are really cool times to, to re-engage uh, in our conversation. Absolutely. And, and necessarily start a Vietnamese American pop band. Um, yeah. That, Vietnamese that should, BTS band. Yeah. I think that we should um, really think about that. And uh, when the, um, what do they call it? The steroid injections, uh, stem cells. When they when they perfect that CRISPR program, we can you know revisit that because uh, you brought it up twice now, and I'm not gonna let that go. <laughs> Roy, you ever in LA? Um, last time I was in LA was uh, 2018. Yeah, because uh, I would uh, visit the UC Irvine um, archive, Southeast Asian archive that they have there on campus. Uh, it's a great archive, and I have friends in Southern California, a couple of friends. Um, well. Three, four friends, and they're they're in academia, and, and they're wonderful people like like Dr. Tao Ha and um, Dr. Tuya Modeng and and uh, Dr. Lam Bui, um, Dr. Linda Vo um, or Linda Va. I'm I'm sure you know them too, since you know they're yes incredible scholars in, in Southern California. Um, yeah, wonderful women. Yeah, wonderful women, great people. Yeah, um, great and people. so yeah, uh, but yeah, I'll definitely let you know next time I'm in Southern California. I do have a couple of I have a couple of uncles and cousins who live in Southern California as well. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah, if you're in LA, please uh, let me know. And if I'm in Houston, your neck of the woods, I will reach out to you too. I'd love to hang out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, well, Thank you. Thank you, Kenneth. Okay. Take I'll care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.